Romans chapter 12. We continue in the book of Romans, and I've been preaching on it on Sunday night, but this passage is so important, so rich. I wanted everybody to hear it, and I'd like for you to stand with me, Romans chapter 12, and we'll be reading verse 1 and 2. Let's all read together today. A big choir. What do you say? Everybody good and aloud and strong from the first word, reading it to the Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. You may be seated. How many times, how many times in these years that I've been pastoring here has someone sat before me, man or woman, sometimes even a couple, and they have come to me with a problem. And they have talked to me about that problem. And basically, they looked at me and their eyes said, Pastor, how can I change? I want to change. I know that what is going on in my life is not right. But tell me how. How can I change? change. It might be driven by guilt. Maybe there's been an affair, an immorality. Sometimes it's driven by alcohol or drug abuse. Sometimes it's driven by thoughts, blasphemous thoughts. I had a man say to me, Pastor, I'm going crazy. I don't know why, but I have these thoughts about God and about Jesus, and they're blasphemous. Where do they come from? How can I change? It might be lust. It might be driven by viewing pornography or things that a Christian ought not to look at. But these are Christian people that are generally sitting here before me. Pastor, how can I change? Deeply ingrained habits, habits of thinking, habits of thought that have been practiced for years. Maybe it's anger and temper and hatred and talking to people in a manner that is so harsh it just alienates everyone from them. Pastor, how can I change? Well, I went over this last Sunday night, but I'll briefly review it. The first eight chapters of the book of Romans is the single greatest portion of Scripture dealing with the doctrines of the Christian faith. In the first eight chapters of Romans, you find all the great doctrines referred to, at least to some extent. And you find in the book of Romans a detailed analysis of the gospel itself. Did you hear the phrase I used? A detailed analysis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the outline of the book of Romans is nothing more than a detailed presentation of the gospel of Christ. And you begin in the first few chapters, it talks about man's need. It talks about the wretched state, the deplorable state of humanity without 
Jesus Christ and without God. And it pictures there a catalog of the most base and vile sins that can be imagined. Man in his debauched and evil state. And we learn in Romans that sin has separated every single person from God. It has become a barrier to God. We can't go to God. We cannot reach God. We can't communicate and fellowship with God. In fact, it's even worse than being separated. We're under the condemnation of God. We are condemned by the fact of our sins that are so abhorrent to Almighty God. And even worse, we are helpless, absolutely helpless to do anything about it. I can do everything I can possibly imagine, but I cannot do anything to remove my sin and to replace my thinking process that I've grown up with. In the book of Romans, in those early chapters, we also are confronted with God's law in our sinful condition. We find out that the law of God itself is a holy law. It is a just law. God's law is a holy and just law. And God's law because it is so holy and just, God cannot just circumvent that. As much as he loves us and as much as he is merciful to us, he must be just. He is holy. He is a holy God. He is a just God, and he must exercise justice, and he must exercise judgment, or he will no longer be holy himself. And before the first sin was ever committed back in the Garden of Eden, God paid a visit to Adam and Eve. And he said to them, in the day that you sin, you will die. No question about it. The wages of sin is death. And when sin came, death came and entered this planet. And since then, the proof that every single person is a sinner... All you have to do is watch the graveyard because every single person reaps the wages of his or her sin by dying at some point. However, is there any way around this terrible catastrophe that humanity finds himself and herself in? Well, there is a way around it. And that is if a substitute were to come to the earth who was righteous enough to pay for every sin of every person for all of time and eternity, then God would be off the hook. He wouldn't have to punish our sins. He could then allow us into heaven. He could forgive us. And you know, of course, that's how that was done. Jesus Christ God became a man, a human being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And Jesus Christ came and lived on this planet for 33 years, a sinless, perfect life. Never sinned one time, not a blemish was upon him. And then he went to the cross, and he took the penalty of our sins, of all of our sins, my sins. Every sin that Bill Monroe has ever committed or will ever commit, by the way, in the rest of my life, Jesus Christ bore it there on the cross. He bore our sins 
in his body on the cross. He not only bore my sin, he bore your sin. He bore the sin of every person. He made a propitiation, First John says, for the sins of the whole world. That's big enough to include you, isn't it? How many of you, Jesus Christ, died for your sins? Did he die for your sins? I mean, I want you to absorb that. The reason I had you raise your hand, I want you to think that. I want you to identify with what I'm saying, not just sit here and let that be a theoretical thing that goes over your head. And so now, if Jesus paid for all of our sins, God can extend grace to us. His holiness has been satisfied. His justice has been satisfied. That's the book of, that's the book of Romans. Now, the song there said so wonderfully. I wrote it down in the middle of the song. I hate to write in the middle of a song and draw everybody's attention away from what y'all are doing, but it's so good. When justice was served, mercy wins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, justice was served. And then now, mercy wins. God can be merciful. Isn't that good news today? My goodness, if that doesn't bless you, your blesser is broke. You're in trouble. Sure, it's wonderful. It's the best, greatest good news anybody's ever heard. When God's mercy or when God's justice was satisfied at the cross, his mercy could now step in and he could forgive each and every one of us. And there's just one condition, just one condition. And the condition is faith, belief. Romans 10, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And so salvation is available to every single person who will respond in faith. Now listen, I gave you all that background. That's eight chapters of doctrine in about seven or eight minutes. But here's the reason I gave it to you is because in chapter 12, the Scripture turns practical. He moves away from the doctrinal part, and he becomes very practical, and he says to us, now this is what I want you to do in the light of what I've said in the first eight chapters. I want you to now apply what I've been teaching in chapters 1 through 8 to your life. And when men believe and become Christians, as most of you will indicate that you are, the Bible says they become new creatures in Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Some translations say a new creation, and they both mean the same thing. They're both accurate. If any man be in Christ, he becomes a new creature, a new person, a new being, a new creation, And he has the capacity to change. I said capacity. I didn't say it's automatic. I said he has the potential to change. When 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 you become a Christian, you now have the potential to make the changes in your life that you did not have before. And I want to tell you, until you've been saved, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I've just shared in detail the gospel with you, But something else, you don't have the power to change your life without Jesus Christ in your life. You can try and try, and you'll be successful for a little time. Why is it that people go to a drug rehab for four or five times? It's because they're trying to do it without the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that people try and try to break their habits of cursing or 
or whatever it may be in their life, whatever sin besets them and controls them and, 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 and drives their very existence in some cases. And they fail, they try, they honestly try. I've had people sit in front of me weeping and saying, I'm trying so hard and I can't do it. I want to say to them, well, I could have told you that before you wasted your time. You can't do it in your own power. You've got to get born again. You've got to become a new creature on the inside. And once you do that, then turn to Romans 12 and 1, and it tells you how to change. And let me tell you this. Listen to me. Hear me. Everybody. Salvation never leaves a person where it finds him. It never leaves anybody where it finds them. That I can just flippantly say, I believe I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian now. And nothing's going to change in my life. I'm going to go on the same language, the same words, the same friends, the same habits, the same thought patterns. Uh-uh. You need to go back and get another dose, my friend. Salvation never leaves a person where it found them. Now, it doesn't radically change you the next day necessarily. Sometimes people have an instantaneous change. Everything in them just seems to change like that. Most of the time, though, salvation changes a person progressively. It's a progress. It's a work in progress. In fact, that work is still going on in my life, and it's going on in your life if you are a believer and you're sincerely trying to follow the Lord. Salvation never leaves anybody where it found them. Number one today, that. Changing begins with presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Verse 1, Romans 12 and 1. Where do you start with changing and growing and developing and being something you were not before? Well, number one, it begins when you present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does it mean to present your body? I put a yield sign up there like you would see out on the highway to give way to someone and something else. And it begins by yielding our bodies to the Lord. The word present there actually has the idea of providing all that I am to him. I'm going to give him everything that I am. I am taking hands off of my life. I'm turning it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first step. Now, the imagery here is from the Old Testament. It says, presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And that reminds me of the Old Testament sacrifices, where people went to the priest, and it would bring a little lamb, or maybe a turtle dove, or different sacrifices that, the, that were required under the, uh, the conditions of their sin. And they would come to the priest, and they would bring that little live animal. And the priest would lay that little animal upon the altar, and he would take the life of that little animal. And they would catch the blood in a container and pour it on the altar where it would be consumed and burned up. Picturing God's justice and God's judgment upon sin. And then the little animal would be consumed there in the, in the, in the process, in the sacrifice. Now, what he's saying here is this. Now, listen to me. You get this. This is, this is really one of the more important passages in Romans. He's saying, if you want to change, if you want to please the Lord now and give your life to him, you present your body to him 
the body reflecting all that I am, mind, soul, body, spirit, thinking process, everything, you're all. You bring your body and you put it on the altar, not literally, but spiritually. You present all that you are to him for whatever he wants to do, wherever he wants to lead, however he wants to lead you and, and, and guide you in your life. And so you see, to present your body, now I want you to get my definition here. To present your body as a living sacrifice means to stop, to think, to make a intentional choice, a willful, voluntary, intentional choice. A conscious choice. I'm now giving myself to the Lord. I'm going to submit myself to him completely. Just like the priest laid that little lamb up there who submitted itself to, to him. I'm going to submit myself, everything that I am, to the Lord, believing that obeying him will be better in my life than trying to run my life myself. I remember as a young man trying to decide what direction I was going in life. And here's the thing that kept calling me to the Lord. The thing that influenced me so much was, do I think I can do a better job running my life than I can by turning it over to the Lord and letting him run it? I have my plans. I have my dreams. I have my aspirations and hopes. But do I really think that at the end of life, I'll look back and say, you know what? I regret giving myself to the Lord. I think it would have been so much better if I'd have just, just kept my hands on the steering wheel myself. And now I'm at the other end. And I can tell you, I don't have any regrets about giving it to him. I don't have one regret. One of the veteran NFL players told the young players that are trying to make the teams right now and they're going to get cut today about half of them on each team. He said to them, you go out there and play during the exhibition games like it was the last game of your life. Don't leave anything on the field. Meaning, pour yourself out. Give everything you have because if you don't, you're going to get cut. What good advice for a Christian today, huh? Don't leave anything on the field. Don't hold anything back. Present your body, everything you are, to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing this, that you're going to be better off by giving it to him than you are keeping it yourself. Number two, change continues. It begins with presenting our bodies. Number two, it continues by not being conformed to the world. Look at verse two. Verse two, and be not conformed to the world. What does that mean? What is the world? You know what the Bible means when it talks about the world? It's, it's not talking about the physical globe, the universe, the earth floating out here in space that you see uh, pictured on an atlas or from one of the astronauts riding in his craft around the world. It's, that's not what it's talking about. We're not talking about the physical earth itself. The world means the culture, really, the culture. And the world has different cultures. There's Asian culture and Latin American culture. And there's American culture. 
It's another way of describing the world is the system. The economic, educational, entertainment, business, medical, religious, name all the different facets of life you can think of. All of that's the it comprises the world. It's the system. It's the way the world is organized, society's organizational structure itself. It is society, if you will. The Germans have a name. I, you, you folks that speak German, excuse my German uh, accent here. Zeitgeist. 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 And I've read that phrase before, and I looked it up. It's exactly what I mean because the idea of zeitgeist, zeitgeist is the spirit of this age, the spirit of the age. Now read your Bible with that thought in mind there, verse 2. Be not conformed to the spirit of the age. What a powerful thought. Don't be conformed to the spirit of our age. What is the spirit of our age? It's the defining spirit. It's the mood of the country. It is society. It is culture, the culture around us. Don't be conformed to the mood of the times, the way people think in the times that we live in right now. The dictionary says the zeitgeist, zeitgeist is the defining spirit or mood of a particular time in history as shown by widely held and accepted ideas, philosophies, beliefs, values, opinions, and so on. Now, how do people think? What is the mood, the spirit of the times in our country today? the ideas that are popular and accepted, the philosophies that are accepted, the beliefs and the values that people hold today around our country. We call that our culture. And what is it that's accepted, the spirit of the times? I tried to define it in my own mind. I would say, number one, the number one value of our culture today is tolerance. Don't judge anything. Don't judge anybody. You just do your thing. Whatever you want to do is right, but don't worry about anybody else. If you say a negative word about anybody else, you're being judgmental. So you can't even have a contrary opinion in this politically correct environment. Another characteristic of spirit of our times is that there is really no absolute truth. The truth is personal. I have my truth. You have your truth. I live by my values. You live by your values. Who is to say whose values is better or worse? It's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of an opinion. And so you choose your truth, whatever it may be. Another characteristic of the spirit of our times is increasingly anti-Christian. You know that. Increasingly anti-Christian to where probably Christians are the most on defense minority group today in America. Everybody has their little political identity group. But to be a Christian almost puts you at odds with the whole culture. It's like we're a little group of people swimming upstream against the current of a strong river. 
And we're not as popular as we one time were. Now, the other thing about the verse there, look at it again in your Bible, 12 and 2, Romans 12 and 2. Be not conformed to the world. And what does the word conformed mean? It has the idea of being pressed into the mold. I use the slide up there today of the potter working a piece of pottery, and he's forming it. He's molding it with his hands as the wheel spins around as he makes a vase or a vessel of some type. And to conform means to be fashioned like the world, to take the shape of the world, to be molded into the image of the world. Now, read it with me. Look at your Bible. And be not fashioned into the shape of or molded to the shape of the culture, the society, the system around you. That's a negative, of course. You see, but it's a very deceiving thing, and particularly with our young people. Young people, you're growing up in this culture, and in all probability, deep in your heart, you long to be like the world pictures it an ideal life. And the world honestly appeals to all of us. The world, as the Bible talks about it here, seems to offer the very best hope of having the things I want. The world says, come, embrace me, and you'll have pleasure. Come, the world says, and embrace me, and you will have popularity and happiness and fulfillment and comfort and satisfaction, and the world promises all this stuff. But I want to tell you, the world deceives people. How many people do you meet along the road of life that have embraced the world and went that way and really have found the things for which they seek? Almost inevitably, they come to the end and they say, there's a hole in my heart. I did not receive the happiness and the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the meaning in my life that was promised me when I set out listening to the siren song of this old world. The Bible's very emphatic about what it teaches about the world, and thus it makes the Bible at odds with the world. Over here's the world, and over here's the Bible. And there's a hostility here that is unbelievable because of what the Bible says about the world. I want to show you two or three of those things. Turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in your Bible, and let's see exactly what God says, what God says. I emphasize that. This is not just Bill Monroe's opinion. This is what God says about this culture, this society, this world system here this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 4, in whom the God of this world, speaking about Satan. The, the Bible says that Satan is the God of the world. The world doesn't recognize the God that we're talking about today. It, the God of the world is Satan. And it says that his strategy is to blind, to bring darkness to the minds of them that believe not. The unsaved, unconverted world out there today, the Bible says, is blind. Man, if you become a witness for Christ and you begin to talk to people, you can see 
spiritual blindness. It's incredible. I mean, I've gone through the gospel with people and spent an hour explaining in detail and then I ask them about it and they turn right around and give me an absolute 100% works for salvation answer. And it used to frustrate me. I thought, are they not intelligent enough to grasp this? And then I talked to people who were very intelligent. And I figured out, this is not a matter of IQ. This is a spiritual veil that's dropped over people. They are blind as a bat when it comes to spiritual things because the God of this world has blinded their spiritual eyes. Understand that when you're talking to lost people. They're not always trying to just be obstinate. They really can't see it. And it tells you why here. The God of this world, the devil, hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest he does not want them to see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God that should shine unto them. And so Satan uses the world as his weapon. Satan uses the world to attract people, to get them off track, to detour them, to lead them down a blind alley and to wreck their lives. Turn with me, if you will, to over to the right again to the book of 1 John. 1 John talks a lot about the world. It does a lot of defining of the world. 1 John chapter 2, and uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1, or 15, pardon me. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world. Now, that's a pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? Don't love the world. This is written to children, uh, to to Christians. Look at the first part of chapter 2, verse 1. He wrote this to my little children, meaning Christians. My little brothers and sisters, my little children in Christ, Christians. Verse 15, Categorically, no exceptions. Don't love the culture, the system, the world around you. Neither the things that are in the world. It's not talking about material things. It's talking about these philosophies, these ideas. And then this is chilling. Look at it, Christian. If any man love the Lord, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love the world and love the Father. Mutually exclusive. So I have to often ask myself, do I love the world? Have I bought in again? Am I buying in again? Don't love the world. If I do, I can't love the Lord. All that is in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the desire of things that we see, the pride of life is not of the Father, it's of the world. And here's the big thing about the world. The world is passing away, and all the lust thereof, and he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. D.L. Moody was dying, and they said to him, what do you want on your tombstone, Mr. Moody, the great, great evangelist? He said, I want 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. This world is passing away, and man, is it passing away passes away for every single one of us. The world passes away. It's temporary. It's transient, transitory. But he that doeth the will of God, he abideth forever. Isn't that good news today, Christians? That's good news right there. I'll tell you that.
Go to chapter 5 and verse number 19. 1 John 5 and 19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world, the whole world, life in wickedness. You see why the world doesn't love the Christian? You see why the world is hostile to the Scripture? Because of statements like this, the Scripture says about the world. And then I turn back just a few chapters to the book of James. Just two or three books back and go to chapter 4 and verse 4. And this is what God's Word is saying about the world that we're not to be conformed to. James chapter 4, verse number 4, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Those are strong words. I'll tell you what, powerful words, but important words. It describes the nature of the world. The nature of the world, again, is that Satan is blinding the lost people's eyes who live in it, using the attraction of the world to draw away people from God. First John says, it's impossible for me to both love the world and to love God with all my heart. First John 5 and 19 says, the whole world is in wickedness. And James says, if I'm a friend of the world, then I am not, if, if I'm a friend of the world, I'm an enemy, an enemy of God. And the last thing right quick in verse 2, he then says, if you want to change, pastor, how can I change? It begins by presenting our body. Secondly, it begins by not conforming to the world, or it continues by not conforming to the world. And thirdly, it concludes with renewing our mind. Be transformed by renewing your mind. And how do you do that? What does that even mean to renew my mind? Okay, now look up here and listen to me. Here's what that means. It means to change my attitudes. It means to change my thinking processes, my habits of thought, because they have been shaped by the culture around me as I've grown up in the world. And I'm to renew my mind, it's, it's like this. My brain is the hardware on the computer. And my thoughts, my mind is the software on my computer that I'm carrying around inside my head. And to renew my mind is to reprogram it to use computer language. Now, you see, until salvation comes along, I can't do this. You folks who are sitting here and you're not saved today, you can't do this. You don't have within you the proper tools to do this. And until salvation comes, first of all, Satan has absolutely unhindered access to my mind. He can come and go at will and put thoughts and impressions and feelings and emotions in my mind, and I have no way to counter him. He is the God of this world, as we just read a moment ago. And I want you to turn to one other passage of Scripture, and it's Ephesians chapter 6 in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, because there's this wonderful passage that talks about the armor of God. And in Ephesians chapter 6, and down in verse number 
11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, to protect yourself against the wiles, the strategies, actually, that's what that means, of the devil. And then in verse 13, it says, take unto you the whole armor of God again, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And then it talks about having your loins, your waist girded with truth, a belt like a belt of truth. And so truth is our first weapon. And then there is righteousness, the weapon of righteousness, the breastplate. And then your feet with the preparation or the readiness to give the gospel of peace. And then in verse 16, there is the shield of faith that we can put up and be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. But I'm really interested in 17 because I'm talking to you about renewing your mind. And how do you renew your mind? At salvation, you put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet, isn't that interesting? Salvation is the thing that protects your brain, or the helmet protects the brain. And when you get saved, God gives you a protection for your mind and for your thoughts if you will put it on and use it. And so the helmet of salvation, the helmet of thinking God's thoughts, thinking right thoughts. And when I get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within me. And he indwells me and he empowers me then to do what I couldn't do before, to break my old way of thinking. And then I have my Bible and I study the Word of God and I fill my mind. I memorize Scripture. I come to church faithfully and the pastor stands and as I've done this morning, verse by verse, I'm going through, I'm teaching and training and helping you to develop the mind of Christ. And you can't get that anywhere but from the Word of God. You're really reprogramming and reprocessing the whole thing up here. And you see, that's a process. People think I'm going to get saved and immediately I'm going to lose my taste for booze or whatever it is their problem is. No, 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 no. That ain't going to happen. It's a process. Sanctification, salvation is immediate, instantaneous. But sanctification is a process. You learn and you grow. And it's changing the thinking processes of old habits. And that's why it takes a while. And so we persevere. So, You're sitting in front of my desk over my office. And whatever the issues of life, you say to me, Pastor, how can I change? I really want to change. Number one, it all begins with salvation. Are you saved? Do you know you're saved? Number two, if you're saved, you present your body like the priest did the little lamb on the altar. You present your body to be a living sacrifice. Give everything you have to God. Don't leave anything on the field. Don't hold back one thing from Him. And then negatively, you say, I'm not going to let the world press me into its mold. I'm not going to allow myself to think and to reason like the rest of the world around me does, or I'll be like them, because whatever I think, I am. Whatever a man thinks, that's what he is. And then lastly, I begin the process of renewing my mind. 
renewing my mind by filling it full of God's Word and seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life. And all that together is transforming power. You can change. Our RU ministry, boy, if that isn't a demonstration, an absolute evidence of how God changes people. People hooked and addicted to drugs and alcohol for their whole life come. And they enter that ministry, that program. You know what? Sometimes they fall and we pick them up. They use again. They get drunk again. They fall off the wagon, whatever you want to call it. We don't give up on them because God doesn't give up on them. We just keep on. As long as there's sincerity of heart and genuine repentance, there's hope. God, Man, we could line them up. You've heard them, their testimonies. You've seen them, the dramatic change that the Lord has brought in their life. Are you? Old John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said it so well in his song. Listen to these words. I once was lost. Have you ever been lost? One of the evangelists of our day said, the biggest problem in America is people want to say they're all saved, but they've never been lost. You can't get saved, you've been lost. First of all, you've got to admit, I'm lost. I cannot do one thing to save myself. I'm lost. I once was lost. Didn't know where I was going, wandering around, as my daddy said, like a blind dog in the meat house. I don't know what that means, but it sounded good to me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I was blind. Blind. Couldn't see a thing. The God of this world had blinded my eyes. But now I see. I see because of the gospel. And down through the ages, ladies and gentlemen, millions of people have come. And they've experienced that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And they've believed. They've come to the cross, they've believed, and they've been transformed. You can do the same. Bow your head with me in prayer, if you will, please.